We've come to the main message portion of our service, so let's pause for prayer. Lord, we're going to open our Bibles now, and we know that you're going to teach us from your word. We worship the living word of God, Jesus Christ, but also we respect and appreciate the written word. So as we study the Gospel of John today, Lord, help us on this second Sunday of Advent to anticipate Jesus' return, but also to understand why he came the first time and what that was all about. So give us new meaning and new understanding and a deeper appreciation today, Lord. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We will turn to the Gospel of John, uh, the first chapter. And the title of this message is Jesus, the One and Only. And very pertinent to the song that Steve just sang because he talked about that. John chapter 1 We just finished, of course, in our Bible study series, we went through the whole gospel of John, and it was very inspiring. And of course, this first section of John chapter 1 is just an amazing behind-the-scenes look at Jesus' first coming of the nativity, where Jesus was, the Son of God, before he was born in a manger in the town of Bethlehem. But uh, let's just, as we get into the sermon here, review the first part of John chapter 1. John, of course, unlike the other three Gospels, kind of goes back and gives us background information. Doesn't just start talking about Jesus in Jerusalem, but he goes way back. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And of course, the Word represents the Son of God or Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's before Jesus was born. He was a pre-existent second person of the Trinity. He is God, and he was with the Father. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist in this case. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Just a beautiful, a bit of information history about Jesus Christ and why we should worship him. But I want to focus on this last verse, verse 18. 
because there's a lot in there. And I'd like to dig a little bit deeper and see exactly what uh, John is talking about when he describes Jesus Christ. So in verse 18 here, he says, No one has ever seen God. Now, I don't know about you, but immediately I think of incidents back in the Old Testament where people came in contact with what seems to be God, or was it God himself? Uh, Turn with me, hold your place here, and let's turn back to Exodus chapter 33, and let's read the story about uh, Moses, because uh, Moses had a couple of different incidents where uh, he was talking to God and seemed to see something. You know, there was the incident of the burning bush. We all remember that, where Moses was walking around and he saw something unique. It was a bush that was burning and, and wasn't consumed. And out of that burning bush, God spoke to, to Moses. But uh, this is, one's a little bit different here. This is Exodus 13, beginning in verse 18. Once again, Moses was in conversation with God. And in verse 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. He's speaking to God, and he asks if he could see this God that he's talking to. Verse 19, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but not my face. My face must not be seen. So when God talked about his goodness passing before Moses, he's referring to his character, his nature, his mercy, his compassion. So Moses got a glimpse of God's back, if you will, kind of from a cleft of a rock. Just got a little peek at it, a little glimpse of it. But God says, no one can see my face. Now, why is that? Have you ever wondered why God remains kind of secretive in that regard? Well, of course, there are very important reasons for that. First of all, God is a spirit, or I should say God is spirit. He's invisible. The only thing we can see glimpses of is when he manifests himself, as he did in this case with Moses. So he's a spirit. He doesn't possess a body. He's not limited in time and space like we are. God transcends all of that. So in order to see God, first of all, you can't see spirit. We're physical, we're human, we're mortal, and we can't see spirit. We can't see anything about God unless God makes a special opportunity to show himself somehow. But even when God takes on a certain form, like he did in the case with Moses here, uh, God is holy and totally set apart from creation. So it's not like we can look on him as we would look on our television or a movie screen or something like that. 
And this really points out and makes a point of God's holiness. He is too holy to look upon. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, I like what Timothy says here about God. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16 says this. He's talking about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, verse 16, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. So God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen. So we have to understand there's a difference between us and God. We're mortal, we're physical, we're limited to uh, time and space. We have these bodies that we have to drag around with us wherever we go. God is not like that. God is so holy, he is so righteous, that we can't even gaze upon what, however he may reveal himself to us. There's one other verse uh, that I just want to turn to real quickly. Even the angels, it seems, can't look upon God. That's one thing I never seem to consider. But in Isaiah 6, verse 2, Isaiah 6 and verse 2, Isaiah has a vision of angels. And in this case, not just your ordinary uh, angel, not even an archangel, but he sees angels that are known as seraphim. There are cherubim, there are seraphim mentioned in the Bible. And notice how he describes this seraphim in this case. Verse 1, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2, Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. So these are angels that are pretty much assigned to be at the throne of God. Why is it that they use wings to cover their faces? It seems that they're not able to look upon God. I mean, not even angels have the right or the ability to look upon this holy God. Okay, now this is all very symbolic talk because angels are spirit as well. <clears throat> they don't have bodies unless they manifest themselves. And in this case, for Isaiah to see them in vision. But this whole thing about angels covering their eyes with their wings, even they are not able to look upon this righteous, holy God. So how can a holy, invisible God reveal himself to sinful mankind? Well, he did. God sent someone to us bearing the unique likeness of God to demonstrate to us his character and nature. And that, of course, is the word, his son, Jesus Christ. So we get the idea of this season and what we're celebrating here when we celebrate Christmas, when we celebrate the nativity we're seeing how God, a very righteous, holy God that we can't even look upon, that even the angels can't look at face to face because he's so overwhelmingly holy and righteous, 
How in the world could God possibly reveal himself to us? Well, you know, if God the Father came down here, you know, in his uh, unbearable light, unapproachable light, we would all be destroyed. We couldn't stand it. So this is what he chose to do. He chose to send someone who was bearing the unique likeness of God to us to demonstrate his character and nature to us. So the only way we could survive it is if he came in the form of a human being. And I don't mean that, that, that Jesus just kind of used a, a human being for a demonstration. He literally became human. And that's the, the miracle of the Christmas story, that here we have a, a man who was born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, little baby placed in a manger who had two natures. He was fully God and fully man. And we don't understand totally how that can be, but we have faith that that is the truth. I believe that it happened. It was a miracle by God. Uh, The Virgin Mary, Scripture says, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and somehow in her was conceived a, a baby, a fetus. And that fetus was to grow and be born in the normal way, just as you and I were. But he is radically different from any of us. He is the God-man, fully God and fully human. Our minds don't truly understand that, but that's what God revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So, no one has seen the Father at any time. It would be the death of us all for God to reveal himself as he truly is, as the Father, because he dwells in unapproachable light. No human being, not even the angels, can approach him fully face to face. God wanted to reveal himself to us, and this is the way he chose to do it. So back here to uh, John chapter 1, verse 18, this one verse goes on to tell us more. John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, now we know why. But God revealed himself to us through his Son. No one has ever seen God but God, the one and only. He's seen God. This refers to Jesus Christ, the one and only. No one has ever been like him or ever will be again. He's the God-man, two natures, fully God and fully human, the one that the Father sent to us to reveal the Father to us. He has seen the Father. He dwells, has always dwelt with the Father. So what better one for the Father to send to reveal himself to us? His one and only Son, God the one and only. Now some of your translations, if you have like the King James, it doesn't say the one and only. It says the only begotten Son. So, there are different translations that translate this a little bit differently. Both mean the same thing. Uh, Also in verse 14 of John 1, it refers to Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son. Begotten is a word that we don't really use anymore in the English language. Uh, It comes from a Greek word 
monoyenes, something like that, monoyenes, which means it's translated either the only begotten, or in the case of the New International Version, it's translated as the one and only. And it's describing Jesus Christ. It uses the same word in the famous, uh, or the, in the famous verse of John three sixteen, where it says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His." In some versions, it says his only begotten son. And in the New International Version, it says he gave his one and only son. So that Greek word is actually a compound word. The first part of it, mono, means one. I remember when I was a teenager and I was buying records, I had to look very carefully because I had a stereo record player and I wanted to get the benefit of the stereo sound and back in those days, you can either buy a mono album, which meant one channel, and there was no separation, or you can get the stereo, which was two channels, and the sound was separate in each ear. So mono means one, and yenes means unique, one of a kind, one and only. There's only one like this. So in describing Jesus Christ, you can either call him God's only begotten son, or you can refer to him as God's one and only. They both mean the same, basically. We, at times in Scripture, are called children of God. In fact, we read it in John 1, verse 13. It says, uh, he gave us the right to become children of God. So, yeah, we are rightly sons of God or daughters of God, but Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only. We feel privileged to be referred to as the children of God. That makes us feel special, and indeed we are. But the only reason we can be children of God is because we have the Son of God, the one and only, the God-man, as our Savior. He, Jesus, is the perfect and complete image of the Father. He is a son like no other, having no beginning and existing with his Father in this unique relationship for all eternity. That's about the best way we can describe him. And of course, that relationship goes beyond not only what we can put into words, but what our minds can imagine. That's Jesus Christ. That's the one and only. And it goes on here in John 1, verse 18, to say, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, because they've been together for all eternity. It says, who is at the Father's side? Now, again, the King James Version says, who is in the bosom of the Father? Jesus Christ is and always has been in the bosom of the Father. Now, that's another word, like begotten, that we don't use really very much anymore. I can't remember the last time I used the word bosom. <laughs> of course, remember there was a comedy show back in the 70s, was it? Bosom Buddies. Do you remember that? Was that Tom Hanks, who was one of the guys? And it was two guys who, for whatever reason, so that they could 
stay living in the apartment they were living in. They dressed like females. You remember that? Bosom buddies. That was the last memory I ever have of, of that word. But it's actually a term of endearment. The fact that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, you know, your chest or that's where the heart is. And when you say you're bosom buddies, it means you're like really heartfelt friends together, okay? Now, in the, in the case of Jesus Christ being in the bosom of the Father, it means that it's a term of endearment. It means he's close to his Father's heart is basically what it means. So that's the relationship that they have had for all eternity. So here's God the Father who wants to somehow reveal himself to mankind. He wants to reveal his character. He wants to reveal his goodness. He wants to reveal his mercy to us. He wants to reveal his compassion. How best to do it than to send to us the one who is at his bosom, who, is, who has his heart, who's closest to the Father's heart. That's the word. Jesus Christ. That is the one he sent. So thank you, Lord, that you sent to us, not just any representative or ambassador, but the one who knows you best. That's who you sent to us, and we thank you for that, Lord. And as we read our Bibles and study Jesus' life, we're seeing God the Father in every aspect of Jesus Christ. The things that he did, the things that he said, the things that he taught, the miracles that he performed. He came to represent as closely as he could, and I think he did a perfect job in everything he did, of representing the Father to us. Remember he said at one time to one of the apostles, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One of the apostles said, Lord, show us the Father. And he said, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Jesus perfectly represented every aspect of God the Father. So through him, we know God the Father. We've never seen him. In fact, we can't even look at him. He is so righteous and holy. But by looking at Jesus Christ and studying his life, we have come to know so much about God the Father. This phrase, you know, being in the bosom of someone... John 13, verse 23. John 13, verse 23. This is at the Last Supper. They're reclining around the table. They didn't sit in chairs, but they kind of were on the, on the floor and kind of leaning on one arm and eating with the other. It says in John 13, verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him or was seated at Jesus' bosom, as it says in in the King James, which meant that this one apostle, who turned out to be John, the author of this uh, gospel, you know, whenever John, in his gospel, wrote about himself in the story, he always did it in the third person. He never said, and well, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus was leaning against me because he loved me the best. No, John was a humble man. And he always spoke of himself in the, in the third person. So, 
Jesus had a special relationship with, with John. The Apostle John was kind of at the heart of Jesus. There was a real close relationship there between the two of them. He was special in that regard. Just as Jesus Christ, the Word, was special to the Father and is special to the Father. Remember uh, the story, too, of Lazarus and the rich man. I won't turn there, but you remember the story. Lazarus, the beggar, not the Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead, but another Lazarus, common name back in those days, is a beggar, and he's like all covered with sores. And then there's a rich man. And finally, these two guys die, and they're in heaven with God. And it talks about the beggar, Lazarus, being in the bosom of Abraham. Because Abraham's in heaven too, and there they are in a close relationship in heaven. And then here's the rich man who's cut off from all of that. So being in the bosom of somebody means a special close relationship. You're kind of sharing hearts together. You've got so much in common. You love one another. So for Jesus to be in the bosom of the Father, that means Jesus has occupied this place of love, intimacy, honor, and communion with the Father from all eternity. And that this unique place with the Father gives Jesus the knowledge of the Father that he is going to share with humanity. So we're picturing Jesus Christ walking the earth during his earthly ministry, who has for all eternity been that close to the Father, God the Father. So that when he came down to this earth, he was sent by the Father to demonstrate to us all about the Father. And he did that. That was Jesus' life. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Now Moses, who was able to see just the backside of God, could not enjoy the full intimacy with the holy God that Jesus did. Jesus does have that intimacy. He's the only one who can offer that intimacy now to us. And you know what? Jesus, as he taught during his earthly ministry and as he inspired the other writers of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, welcomes us into that same relationship with the Father. Now, how can he do that? that that's almost... a. Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not heresy, but uh, when you treat some holy thing as common. Blasphemy. Thank you. That's almost blasphemy. How can we, as mortal, sinful human beings, be welcomed into that same close relationship that Jesus Christ has had with the Father for all eternity? Being at the bosom of the Father, if you will being the one and only Son. Well, that's what Jesus Christ came to do for us. He made it possible for us to enter into that same close, intimate relationship with the Father. Remember, the Apostle Paul says that we have the uh, privilege now of referring to God the Father as Abba. See, we don't know that word. We would call it Daddy. We have, we have the privilege, God has given us the privilege through Jesus Christ to have that same close, intimate relationship with God the Father to the point that we can call him Daddy. We don't have to call him Father. It's fine to call him Father, but it can be closer than that. 
You know, my kids growing up never called me father. Yeah, I was their father, but they called me dad, pops, whatever the case may be. That's how close we are allowed to be with God the Father, and it's okay with him. This holy, righteous God that angels can't even look at has given us the right, because of Jesus Christ, to have that same close, personal, intimate relationship with his Father. And he welcomes us to that. He has opened the door for us to be able to do that through his death on the cross. So back here to John 1 now. So we don't look at the back of God like Moses had to. We also lie in his bosom and in a sense, if you will, see him face to face. Because Jesus has revealed all this information about his father to us so that we can be in relationship with him. Finally, here in this John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. We talked about Moses. We talked about Jesus. But God, the one and only, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has existed with God, who has been at his side and in his bosom all eternity. And the last phrase of that verse is, he has made him known. That's what Jesus came to do, to make the Father known to us. Now, again, I don't want to get into to, to Greek, but the phrase that is used there, made him known, is the same word from which we get the word exegesis. Now, you may not know what that means, but to me as a, a Bible student over the years, exegesis means to take a verse, to take a passage, and to dig, to, to, to bring everything out of it. And that's what we're doing in this one verse now. We're exegeting it. <laughs> So it means to take what's in there and to bring it out and make it understandable and and to kind of make it known. So it doesn't just mean that Jesus interpreted the scripture or explained it in a very shallow way. He was narrating the story of God the Father throughout his earthly ministry, as we read in the Gospels. He was telling the story of his father, if you will. Not telling the entire you know, history of God, because our minds couldn't grasp that. But he was, in a deep way, he was telling us all about God the Father. A lot of what Jesus understood about his Father. Jesus explains the unseen God verse by verse, if you will. When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and for that matter, all the rest of the Bible, too. So he fulfilled the job that God the Father gave him to do. He came to this earth as a human being, both God and man, and his whole life was about revealing what the Father's like to us. And everything we saw Jesus do, everything we heard him say, it's exactly reflective of God the Father. He has made him known. So... When you read the Gospels, for that matter, when you read the whole Bible, you're learning all about God the Father and his relationship with the Son through the Holy Spirit. Now, if I could just say three points that I'd like you to take from this sermon today. We'll sum it up this way. Point number one, Jesus is the only way to know the Father. 
Jesus is the only way to know the Father. If you don't concentrate and focus on Jesus, you're not going to learn about God the Father. Now, in the past history of our denomination, it sounds crazy to say it, but we didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on Jesus Christ. We were too busy trying to understand Old Testament law and uh, legalistic type things and regulations and those sorts of teachings. And by not focusing on Jesus enough, I don't think we ever came to understand God the Father all that much. God has perfectly revealed himself through Jesus only. Through Jesus only. And hence through the scripture which were written about Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it says this. And and why is it important to focus on Jesus, the one that the Father sent? John 14, verse 6. Jesus said it here, I am the way. You know, we all want to be with God the Father. We actually are, but I mean for eternity, in close face-to-face relationship, to be at his bosom. In order to do that, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. He doesn't say, I'm one of many ways. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So why do we preach practically every week about Jesus? That's why. Because I'm guiding you, flock, to the Father. And in order to do that, we better focus on Jesus. We don't need to focus on what foods we should and should not eat, or what days we should keep, or any other matter like that. And I can remember, I repent of it now, but I remember years and years ago giving sermons on such things and going through a whole sermon and never never once mentioning the name of Jesus Christ. And I repent of that, (laughs) okay? Because the only way, the only way, what did one of the other uh, gospel writers or uh, epistle writers say? There's no other name under heaven by which we will be saved. Jesus Christ. And you know, I know in our culture and in this day and age, it's so politically incorrect to say such a thing, but it's the truth. You know, people out there in the media and elsewhere think that it's very offensive for you to say, well, Jesus is the only way. No, they want you to say Jesus is one of many ways. And that's simply not true. Because, you know, people think that, well, if you're this or if you're that, You can still be a good person and make it to heaven. If you do your best, you just need to do your best. Well, you, with all of your efforts for all of your life, can never be worthy by doing your best of being in heaven with God the Father for all eternity. There's one way, there's one path, and it's Jesus Christ. It's not based on your effort. It's based on his mercy and his death. So that's the first point. Jesus is the only way to know the Father. Point number two, if you want to know God better, focus on the cross. Not just on Jesus Christ, but on that part of his life where he died. Because that's what it's all about. That is the crux of the whole matter. And you know what? You could learn about the Father when you look at the cross. 
Because believe it or not, in the cross, you learn about God's holiness. Because God is so holy and righteous that when we sin, there's a penalty that has to be paid. Do you ever wonder why is that? And it has to do with death. Remember, in the history of the Old Testament, anytime somebody sinned, they had to bring an animal to the temple and give it to the priest, and the priest would cut its throat. Wow. Those poor animals. Think of all the, the hundreds of thousands and the millions of animals that had to die, uh, innocent animals, because of the sins of the people. Why is death required? Doesn't God love animals? Of course he loves animals. He created them. But there's a price that must be paid for sin. And sin is a very serious thing. But God is holy. God is righteous. God made a way for sinful people to come into his presence. And Jesus is the doorway. And that's why Jesus had to die. He took on our penalty. Because God is just. When he says sin is wrong and sin brings about death, the wages of sin is death, he means that. And there's no way God is going to change that because it's the truth. Something had to happen for our sins. Either we were to die and God would be very just and righteous in in allowing that to happen for our sins. But no, he chose to substitute for you and for me. And that was going to be his son. How can God stand by and let his son die for our sins? Because God is just. A rule is a rule. The wages of sin is death. It's either going to be our death or a substitute's death. And in this case, he allowed his son to be the substitute. The cross is about God's righteousness. And how much God hates sin. The cross is about God's patience. You know, there's a scripture that says that God waited and uh, through the Old Testament, he waited for Jesus' sacrifice. He restrained himself from punishing people for sins, knowing that his son was going to be their propitiation or was going to be the substitute. So God patiently waited for that to happen. The cross talks about God's grace. It talks about his love. It talks about all of the characteristics of God the Father. If you just look at the cross and study that and pray about it, that's going to be revealed to you personally. So if you want to know God better, focus on the cross, not just on Jesus, but on his sacrifice. Remember, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. John five thirty nine. It's all about Jesus. And finally... So we see Jesus is the only way to know the Father. The second point is, if you want to know God better, focus on the cross. And thirdly, in every scripture you read, look for Jesus, because he's there. Not in every single verse, but every book of the Bible has Jesus in it. I think Nora, Pastor Nora mentioned the the Jesus Bible. Is that what it was called? And it specifically points out in that Bible every reference if it's a clear, upfront reference, or if it's kind of hidden and, and hard to see, and it shows you which one refers to Jesus. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, they, they take of the, the tree God said not to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after that happens, here's 
this serpent, and Jesus is, God's talking to the serpent, and he's talking to Adam and Eve, and he talks about how uh, this serpent is going to strike the seed or the offspring of Eve, eventually, down through the, the centuries, going to strike at his heel, but then he's going to crush the serpent's head. That's Jesus. When did the serpent strike Jesus' heel? On the cross, when Jesus died. And when did Jesus crush the serpent's head? On the cross, when he died. Because he destroyed, you know, Satan's work. He destroyed the penalty for sin on our behalf. Everything that Satan would like to have carried out on us, Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, has nixed it, if you will. So, so many times throughout the Bible, you see these stories and you see these references. Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac and about to sacrifice him on an altar. Of course, that separate, uh, refers to us and our death penalty for sin and God providing a substitute so that Isaac didn't have to die. And this lamb that was, or the goat rather, that was pulled out of the, the branches and the thorn bush. And it took the place of Isaac, specifying how Jesus Christ took the place of us in the death penalty for our sins. Amen. Finally, let's turn to John chapter 20. There was a purpose why John wrote his book the way he did, the Gospel of John, and why he put so much emphasis on Jesus Christ. And here he actually explains the purpose of the writing of his Gospel. John 20 and verse 30. He says, summing things up, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is 